Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college, or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 26th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and for Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, health officials wrestle with an ongoing COVID crisis. Then state hospitals welcome in federal aid. Plus, more and more women hit the road as truck drivers and a conversation with writer Richard Goffrin. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When we look at, at where we're heading with overall hospitalizations and ICU admissions and ventilator use in Mississippi, guys, it's still bad. That state epidemiologist, Dr. Paul Byers, speaking yesterday about Mississippi's ongoing COVID crisis. Byers also issued a clarification on livestock, ivumectin, ingestion in Mississippi. A miscommunication between the Department of Health and reporters late last week led to sensationalistic and misleading headlines about Invermectin poisoning. We indicated that 70% of the calls that were related to Ivermectin were related to animal Ivermectin. Uh, I'm afraid that that we maybe didn't word that as well as we needed to, and people interpreted that to mean that 70% of the total calls to the poison control center had been related to the use of livestock ivermectin. That's not the case. 70% of the calls related to ivermectin were related to actual use or ingestion of livestock ivermectin. And so I wanted to make sure that we were clear on that piece that not all uh, 70% of all of the calls that the Poison Control Center is receiving are related to animal ivermectin. Byers makes clear that under no circumstances should a human being take livestock, ivumectin, or any medication intended for a different species. 
Tragically, the Department of Health reported yesterday that a person under five years of age has died of COVID-19. There have now been six COVID-related deaths of children in Mississippi since the onset of the pandemic. Jim Craig, the state director of Health Protection, says pediatric hospital capacity remains a concern. While we have a number of hospitals that provide pediatric services, we have a pediatric hospital here in Jackson, which is really the only pediatric dedicated facility for uh, uh, children in Mississippi. Uh, We have some normal referral patterns that go over to Louisiana, also into Alabama and up to uh, Memphis to Lebonners. We're seeing stresses on our outlying, our our partners in, in other states, as well as our facility here. Department of Health and Human Services, our federal partner at HHS and the Assistant Secretary for Parents and Response are having conversations actually today with our pediatric center here in Mississippi to see if there are ways that we can continue to to help support them better. As far as surge ICU, it's the same problem we have in in the adult. Uh, It's making sure we have enough staffing. We believe we have enough beds if we just have enough staffing. Yesterday, the state reported a little over 3,300 total new COVID cases and 22 new deaths. We expect updated numbers later this morning. Coming up, Mississippi hospitals welcome in federal help. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Yesterday, Governor Reeves announced a plan to bring hundreds of nurses and doctors into the state as COVID cases surge. The promise of more hands on deck comes as relief to the state medical leaders like Tim Moore. He's president and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association. We are excited to have uh, additional staff in the state with the federal assistance that's that's coming along with it. Our hospitals are at the breaking point. Our staff that has been going nonstop uh, are at the breaking point. And then, of course, we're having to battle the issue of contract companies and the other states that have much higher reimbursement for services rendered, like Texas and Florida and places like that. Texas seems to be the most predominant at this point in time that is recruiting so many of our nurses and respiratory therapists out of the state. And it's just at, at unbelievable hourly rates and incentives and incentives. They're just they're unbelievable. What kind of incentives are they offering? Well, we've uh, we've seen ads of some of the incentives in different states. I think Texas has probably got the highest one in South Texas, and it's uh, dollars $52, $53,000 worth of incentives plus the rate that comes along with it. And they're paying anywhere from $130 to $150 an hour for RNs in ICU. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for a position that pre-COVID was probably paying in the neighborhood of you know, I'm, I'm going to give a mid-range, so you'd had some that might have been less, but some that have been more, probably $30, $35 an hour. It's, it's gone to that point. So when you start looking in, in Mississippi and you look at the financial situation of our hospitals and then, of course, all the added burden now, uncompensated care has always been an issue, but COVID has certainly exacerbated that. I've talked to a number of hospitals that their uncompensated care has doubled 
since um, since the pandemic started. Is there anything that you would like to have seen done differently that might have prevented this crisis? Anytime, if we walk in and there's there's water overflowing in the bathtub, we don't grab a towel and start wiping up the water. We cut the spigot off. We stop the water from flowing. I, I think we could have probably done a lot more uh, from um, pushing mask wearing masks, and then certainly advocating every way we possibly could from an education standpoint to please get vaccinated. I'm hearing so many stories now about expectant mothers, about young children, about young adults that have their whole life ahead of them. Had they only been able or, or, or gotten a vaccine, or if somebody they were exposed to had had a vaccine, now, I know there's ifs and buts, and that's very complicated because we do have folks that uh, have received the vaccine and are are still getting sick, but they're not nearly as sick as they would have been had they not had the vaccine. The hospitals have, have been over backwards. I, I I can't say enough about how well our hospitals have, have handled a catastrophic situation. We, the speaker compared what we're trying to go through, through a uh, to a hurricane. And, of course, you have the immediate needs, and then you have the mid-needs, and then you have long-term needs. And and the only contrast I see to that is we're in a situation where a hurricane hit the whole country. So whereas in a hurricane, we would be able to pull resources from other states and other parts of the country. It is extremely difficult to do that in our situation because our neighbors are in as bad a shape as we are. Uh, Louisiana, Alabama, there's not an ICU bed in Alabama. The SEC of the southern states are, have actually really seen the blunt of this now. But as I talk to counterparts in other parts of the country, I'm hearing it's starting there now, too. They're starting to see numbers go up. So, definitely, sadly, uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, this is something that we're probably going to be dealing with for a while until we convince as many people as possible that, that a vaccine is a lot less risk than actual getting the disease and the ramifications involved in how well your body will respond to that disease. The $1.3 billion that's coming to the state from the American Rescue Plan, will you be advocating that that money, some portions of, go to hospitals in the state? Absolutely. We'll be working hard for that. I do know that, uh, or I understand, that uh, about $900 million of that is dedicated to infrastructure and uh, broadband and uh, sewer and water and things like that, that that are true infrastructure needs. And I don't think there's any change in that, but it still leaves a lot of money out there, and hospitals are definitely going to be advocating that some of that come back uh, to them. Any comment on Pfizer, on the FDA approving it? Do you think that is going to work in the state's favor at all in dealing with covid you know, I hope so. I know I've had a lot of people that remark back to me that, look, I'm just not going to take a vaccine or anything else that's not fully backed by the FDA. You know, I guess I understand some of that, but I also know that the ramifications of the disease or the virus were so bad that the FDA is not going to just run something through, and that's why it's taken so long to do this. It still had to go through the time trials as it went through. So I really think you're going to see more employers starting to mandate the vaccine. 
I think that will happen. Of course, you know that we've had several health systems in the state that have already done that. And then, uh, and of course, that's going to be all over the country. Uh, you know that uh, CMS last week pushed out a requirement for nursing homes, all nursing homes staff to be fully vaccinated. Now, it's going through the process of becoming a, a CMS regulation, so we're weeks away from that happening. But there will be a comment period, and then CMS will look at that, and they'll send down the requirements. And I will just I will be shocked if that doesn't happen for all healthcare workers before this is over. It is definitely in the military. They're moving forward. I think the Biden Harris administration is moving forward with all federal employees being fully vaccinated. The military, of course, I just I can't foresee it not getting to that point. Tim Moore is president and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association. Coming up, an inflection point for women in truck driving. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. So many of the jobs usually held by women disappeared during the pandemic. That could explain why more women are taking up a a job traditionally held by men, truck driving. There's a record number of women behind the wheels of big rigs today. But as Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, there are still a few speed bumps keeping women off the road. Yes, today's highways might be dominated by men, but Pamela Williams is putting them on notice. Guys, you better watch out because this right here is a woman's industry for now on. Williams' bracelets jangle as she revs up her truck's engine. She's a truck driving instructor with DSC Training Academy in Jackson, Mississippi. It's the air horn. It's the city horn. Now, if you're in a scary situation and people not doing what they're supposed to do, I hit the air horn. That kind of startled them, but it let them know a truck is in your area. Please get your life together. DSC says it's had a surge of women signing up for classes since the start of the year. Even though some trucking jobs disappeared at the beginning of the pandemic, there are about 2% more women driving today than at the start of 2020, according to the job site ZipRecruiter. At the same time, men still haven't fully bounced back from their pandemic drop. Williams says one reason more women are taking up the wheel comes down to pay, on average about $50,000 a year. Because, I mean, you looking at I could go to a job and work 40 hours and bring home $400. I could go out here and drive a week and make $1,000, a quick $1,000 doing something that I like to do. That's good. But there's also plenty holding women back, including sexism. Amaya Livingston is taking classes at DSC. She's just returned with the Academy's truck after refueling at the gas station. Livingston says the men there gave her some stares. Kind of side eyes, kind of, you know, smirks or grunts or whatever. So comes with the territory, you know. Women who make history don't, you know, we're not complacent. Women still only make up a fraction of truck drivers, about 16%. Chandra Childers with the Institute for Women's Policy Research says women often just can't imagine themselves driving a 16-wheeler. So just like their friends and family view these as male jobs, like that's what men do. That's men's work. 
it hasn't been presented to them as an option. That's why her institute recently started working with training facilities in New Orleans to prepare women for another male-dominated industry, construction. Some construction training programs in Alabama also say they're seeing more women signing up for classes in the last few years. But it still can be hard for women to find training. Choder says unions offer many of those opportunities, but that could still be a problem in the traditionally anti-union South. When we talk about apprenticeships, unions become really important. And of course, in the South, you're not going to see the same unionization that we see in other places. Perhaps the biggest barrier keeping women out of trucking is child care. After all, it's not a nine to five. Drivers are often away from home for weeks at a time. It's the reason Tiffany Hathorne initially dismissed trucking. I just kind of threw it out of my head because, you know, I just didn't think anybody would be able to watch over my boys when I'm not able to. But her mom convinced her they can make it work. She could watch the kids while Hathorne could video chat in from the road. Hathorne graduated from DSC Academy a year ago and expects this year to make about $70,000. I'm not struggling like I was before. I mean, that's an awful feeling when you're when you're struggling from check to check. But now when those issues come up, I'm just like, okay, we'll get it done. We'll pay for it. And, you know, that that's a huge, 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 huge difference. And so I have a, more of a peace of mind now. Hathorne gets a lot of Facebook messages from women and men asking if they should get into trucking, too. She makes sure to tell them the good and the bad, including the missed birthdays. But she says it's worth it for a bigger paycheck and the confidence that comes with it. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between WBHM in Birmingham, WWNO in New Orleans, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Coming up, a conversation with writer Richard Goffrin. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 21st Century Southern Writers, New Voices, New Perspectives is a new collection of essays on contemporary Southern fiction. Richard Goffrin, who edited the anthology, says featured writers have fresh eyes to their subject matter. All the time, he tells Karen Brown, they stand on the shoulders of giants. Some of the connections to the past still exist. As you probably know, Faulkner, for instance, his shadow has been been long and, and wide and, and still hovers over some of these writers. I think of Jesmyn Ward, for instance, who is one of the more well-known writers that we're featuring. From Mississippi. Text. From Mississippi, yes. yeah. And she very consciously, I think, models and perhaps revises some of what Faulkner has done. She has her own fictional landscape, just as Faulkner did, and so on. But I think what's different, really, to get back to your original question, is a kind of more of a variety. There were certainly uh, women writers uh, in the previous century, uh, Harper Lee, Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Wealthy, and so on. But I think probably fewer African-American writers Zora Neale Hurston was discovered kind of late, and then Ralph Ellison, if we want to consider him a Southern writer. But we didn't even do it consciously. But after reflecting on our text, we realized we have quite a bit of diversity there that wasn't there, I don't think, in the 20th century. 
we've got you know a handful of African American writers, uh, lots of women writers, and we didn't do that consciously. But I, you know, look back on it afterwards and said there is a lot of variety. The other thing is there are kind of styles of writing that we may not have seen before. Karen Russell, for instance, a writer from Florida, she's a very interesting take on sort of supernatural. She even has like vampires and things in her fiction. Very quirky. And it's a kind of thing we haven't seen before. I also think that there's some questing among these fiction writers for some kind of transcendence. That was always there, especially, you know, Flannery O'Connor, very consciously a Christian perspective. But now that that kind of questing is taking different forms. Another Mississippi author included in this book is Michael Ferris Smith. We've spoken to him a number of times, and he, I just want to name some of his books. The Hands of Strangers, Rivers, Desperation Road, The Fighter, Blackwood, right. and his right. most recent book, right. Nick. And Jasmine Ward, right. two-time National uh, Book Award winner for Sing, Unburied Sing, and Salvage the Bones. Well, there's another Mississippi writer. I, was, I mentioned before about some writers we left out. We didn't discover him till late, but there's another young Mississippi writer named Snowden Wright who has written yes. a couple of novels. He was uh, recently in this area, and we met him and said, uh-oh, we apologized to him. <laughs> we didn't get you in the text. But, uh, you know, it's it's inevitable that we're going to miss somebody like that. I He's guess. been part of our book club as well. So we really right. do focus on Mississippi writers. And, and it's nice to see some included in this book and to learn about other writers from the South. I can see where this book would be a source for literature professors. But what's the appeal for the general public? Well, I think it looks more like an academic text than it really is. <laughs> the essays are not real academic prose. I think that we've sort of pitched it for the general reader. I think if any reader is interested in what's going on in Southern writing today, it's a good, it's a good introduction. The essays are relatively short, and they are really trying to give an overview of what's going on. So it's sort of like a first first leap into more of a critical analysis of these writers. You know, we expect that more work will be done on these writers in the future. This is sort of like getting our toes wet. I think the essays should appeal to a general public. They're not, they're not terribly erudite, I would say. Well, and readers looking for uh, contemporary fiction can compile a list of things they want to read based on this book. Exactly. A general reader can just uh, dip into it at any place and, and, and find something of interest, I think. It's kind of an introduction. Here's what you might want to read. <laughs> you know? I'm going to put you on the spot for this final question. Who uh -huh. among these writers do you think might join the likes of Faulkner or Harper Lee or Mark Twain in history? Any of uh, them? Who's going to last is what you're asking, yes. I guess. Right? Yes. Well, I'm, I think that Jesmyn Ward, for instance, we've already mentioned her has already made quite a mark. She's already won two National Book Awards, and you mentioned the novels. I think that she stands out. I think Tayari Jones is another one. Um, those are two that I think of as somebody that, you know, might be taught in literature classes 50 years from now, that kind of thing. 21st Century Southern Writers, New Voices, New Perspectives. We've been speaking with the co-editor, along with Gene W. Cash, Richard Goffrin. Thank you so much, Richard. 
thank you for calling. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.